While we live in a world tonight that demeans and actively tries to destroy, many people do, the Word of God, we are involved in a study on Sunday evenings of a beautiful psalm that does just the opposite. It does not denigrate, it does not demean, it does not seek to destroy the Word of God, but rather exalts the Word of God. The author is uncertain, but believed by many to be David, the man after God's own heart. And indeed, that comports with the attitude that is expressed in this psalm in verse after verse, an attitude of one who is truly a man after God's own heart, a man who loves the Word of God. We've mentioned, we'll mention again, the psalm is an acrostic psalm with eight paragraphs of eight uh, verses. And these, um, or with every paragraph being eight verses, and uh, with 22 paragraphs in them comprising 176 total verses. 22 paragraphs, and each paragraph represents a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and each one of these 22 paragraphs represents one of those Hebrew letters. And every verse of each paragraph begins with the corresponding letter that is represented in that paragraph. The paragraph we study tonight is Psalm 119, beginning at verse 121. And there is no corresponding English letter in our alphabet to this letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It looks a little bit like a, a V, but it's not a V. It has a little mark under it, like a breathe mark, but we don't really have a corresponding letter in our alphabet to this particular letter in the Hebrew alphabet. But in these eight verses, beginning at verse 121 through verse 128, each verse begins with the letter of this particular of the, this particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The psalmist begins in this particular portion of his beautiful psalm, I have done justice and righteousness. Do not leave me to my oppressors. I have done justice and righteousness. Some translations render it judgment and justice. I have done judgment and justice. The idea being, I have been just with my fellow man. Now, if David is the author of this psalm, then David, for 40 years of his life, was king over Israel in the United Kingdom. And if indeed David penned these words, he was saying that during that 40-year time, he did all that he could as a king, as a ruler of God's people, to execute justice and righteousness to execute proper judgment, judgment based upon the statutes of God. He would have been an unusual ruler, obviously, in so doing. Because obviously we know that rulers generally in pagan nations especially have no interest much at all in righteousness necessarily. They may have an interest in what they can make through bribes that are offered to them, uh, in their positions where they can take advantage of their positions. And tragically, we see that even today 
in the political world in which we function, where there are those who are not as concerned as they should be about justice and righteousness and proper judgment, and many times their deeds are brought to light and they are prosecuted and go to jail because they have had little or no concern for justice and righteousness. But the psalmist is one who reminds the Father in heaven, reminds us of the importance of doing justice, of being righteous, that is, of simply doing what is right. And when we think of the idea of judgment, it also brings to mind something we've talked about in in a recent lesson, as we talked about the importance of judging righteously and the importance of judging, period. And that we are not to refrain from executing judgment as we live in this world, but in fact we're to judge righteous judgment, John 7, 24. Remember when we based the lesson on an editorial uh, comment that was submitted to the Chattanooga Times Free Press where the, uh, the writer was saying we should not in any way judge, in this case it was the sin of homosexuality that was under consideration, and we've been dealing with that in the Good News Today program, and uh, today's program that aired was the last one in that uh, series where we have offered the booklet out of Memphis on the whole truth about homosexuality, and uh, we've had requests for it, even though we told them to write to Memphis, uh, not everyone gets that, so they contact us, and we're happy to send it. We do have some extra booklets, but there's been good response to, to that. But it was all based upon that letter to the editor in which the writer said, we should not judge, period, basically was the thrust of that. Well, the psalmist reminds us that judgment or justice and righteousness are to be characteristic of those who follow God. Whether or not one is a king, as David uh, was, or in a position of power, a a position from which judgment is executed, regardless of our position as children of God, we are to judge righteous judgment. And we are to be concerned, obviously, about justice and righteousness. The thought of this verse seems to be, I have done justice and righteousness, so since I have, on that basis, as appeal to God is, upon that basis that I have done my best to do right, then please do right by me, so to speak. Don't leave me to my oppressors. In other words, take my cause as your cause. And that thought is further reinforced by the next verse in this paragraph. And that verse says this, verse 122. Be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the proud oppress me. That word surety has an interesting uh, background. It carries the idea of of mingling something together, uh, of undertaking something for someone, of becoming involved uh, for someone. In other words, it would be in modern-day comparisons, like signing a note uh, for someone to get a loan. Going on that note, you become a guarantee or uh, a surety for that note. If the one for whom you are uh, becoming a surety does not pay it, then you're going to be responsible for paying it. And that's the idea here of the word surety and the plea that, that the psalmist is making. He wants God to take his part. 
He wants his part to become God's part. He wants them to be together in this effort, and he wants God's participation in this effort to resist those who are his oppressors. The word is used also back in the book of Job. Job chapter 17 and verse 3, Job puts it this way in his plea as it's recorded, Now put down a pledge for me with yourself. Who is he who will shake hands with me? Job is calling for the same thing the psalmist is here. Put down a pledge for me with yourself. Take my part. Take my part. And that's what the psalmist is calling upon God to do. But now think with me about this. Who is it that has become, has become our surety? Who is it who has done that for us? Jesus Christ has, hasn't he? Without question, he has become our surety. You look at Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 22. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Jesus sealed that covenant with his blood. We can be absolutely sure and certain that everything in that covenant is just as it is purported to be. That every promise is sure and certain. That Jesus has taken our part. He has become a participant with us. He literally became a participant with humankind, did he not? He came to this earth, he lived, he died, he was tempted in all points as we are, he suffered immensely, yet sinlessly, and died as the perfect sacrifice for your sins and for mine. And in that death, he sealed with his blood the covenant and became a surety of everything that is promised therein. And so we know there is someone who took our part. But the beauty is he continues to take our part. Does he not? Because he continues forever in that priesthood. Two verses later from the verse we read in Hebrews seven twenty-two. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he ever lives to make intercession for them. He became our surety in sealing with his blood the covenant, ushering in that new and final covenant, and as our high priest and mediator, he remains our surety, the one through whom we may approach the Father with full assurance and complete comfort that he is our surety even to this moment in time, that he mediates between God the Father and all those who are his faithful children. What a wonderful reassurance that is. It's the thing for which the psalmist was calling as he pleaded with the Father. But God we are certain, not only answered David, if David be the author of this psalm, but we know that God answered humankind to the fullest extent possible in the giving of his only begotten son to become the surety of a better covenant and our mediator and our high priest, our continual surety 
for us. Well, the next verse really reminds us of of how we should respond to the knowledge that he is our surety. Because here the psalmist says, My eyes fail from seeking your salvation and your righteous word. Should not the gratitude that we feel for the one who has done so much for us prompt us to continually and fervently seek to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Should we not seek his salvation and his righteous word? Now, the immediate context here may may indicate and probably does that in a time in which the psalmist is oppressed, he is seeking deliverance, he is... He is uh, looking for that deliverance and for that salvation so intently that his eyes are failing as he looks for that deliverance. But the principle is a beautiful one indeed and one that is reinforced throughout this great psalm. And that is that the psalmist also sought diligently the Word of God, loved it deeply, studied it and meditated upon it constantly and made it the uppermost goal in his life to be more like God through seeking the salvation found in his word. Now notice the connection. My eyes fail from seeking your salvation and your righteous word. One cannot separate salvation from the righteous word. There is no salvation outside of the Word of God. This is the only source of salvation. This is the only means of knowing what one must do to be saved and of knowing how to remain saved once one has been saved. It comes from the all-sufficient Word of God. And in that Word we learn about a quality of God that is absolutely crucial to our well-being, and that is His mercy. And the next verse, verse 124, reminds us that our plea should be that of the psalmist as well. That God would deal with us according to his mercy. Deal with your servant, he writes, according to your mercy, and teach me your statutes. Deal with your servant according to your strict justice? Is that our plea? Should that be our plea, that God would deal with us according to his strict justice? Oh, it shouldn't. That should never be our plea. Because if God had dealt with us according to his strict justice, then his mercy would not have been extended in the giving of his only begotten Son. And that mercy upon which we are so dependent would not have been ours. We are still dependent upon His mercy for our salvation. Does that exclude the necessity of our doing the will of God? No, it didn't for the psalmist. The psalmist makes it abundantly clear in verse after verse after verse of this psalm that doing the will of God is absolutely crucial. But with that understood, he also understands that we are in constant need of his mercy. God extended his mercy to us and his justice is satisfied by the extension of that mercy and the giving of his only begotten son and the sacrifice that was made there so that God's justice and mercy could be in harmony and so that we as frail human beings who fall short 
could ultimately be saved, not by being sinless, but by being obedient and by recognizing the need for his mercy. Look with me at Titus chapter 3 at verse 5 because that verse summarizes beautifully the point that we are making here from this verse from Psalm 119. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's a beautiful summary of what David, if David be the author here, is saying. Deal with your servant according to your mercy and teach me your statutes. Mercy and the keeping of God's statutes are not incompatible. They are perfectly harmonious, perfectly compatible. And that's what Titus 3 and verse 5 reminds us of. We can't work out our salvation by righteousness that we have done and thereby say to God, as it were, you must save me because I've worked it out by myself. And I am righteous and I do not need your mercy or your grace. Of course not. But by the same token, the fact that we cannot do that does not exclude the need for doing something, does it? Because Titus 3.5 makes that abundantly clear. While... Paul, writing to Titus, affirms that we can't earn salvation by works that we do. Our works of merit or works of the law of Moses would certainly be included. We can't be saved in that way. We need his mercy. And he extended his mercy. According to his mercy, he saved us. But how? Through the washing of regeneration. What is that? That's baptism. That's baptism. That's our part. That's our response to God's mercy. That's our response to God's grace. And by being baptized for the remission of our sins, we are not in any way earning salvation, nor are we seeking to earn salvation. We're accepting salvation by obedient faith and thanking God for His mercy in giving us the opportunity to respond by a belief that leads us to repent, confess, and then be washed in baptism where the blood is applied because you see his mercy has taught us his statutes it is by God's mercy that we have this book in the first place it is by his mercy that we can know to be washed in baptism it is by his mercy that we know the plan of salvation it is by his mercy and his grace that we know what to do to live in such a way so as to have confidence that when the Lord comes again or we die, whichever comes first, we can approach that judgment with anticipation rather than anxiety. And that we can anticipate, well done, good and faithful servant, rather than depart from me, I never knew you. Why? Because his mercy has been extended to give us his plan for saving us, not only initially from past sins, but to save us from the continuing sin that we inevitably occasionally commit despite the fact that we no longer live in sin, but we nonetheless fall short at times. The blood keeps on cleansing, 1 John 1, 7 through 9, as we keep on walking and as we freely and willingly confess our sins to the throne of heaven. If David wrote this psalm, less than half of the Old Testament, we're told, was written at the time that he penned these words. And so he didn't have everything that we have today. All of the 39 books of the Old Testament, all the 27 books of the New Testament are ours. How, it is, how is it that we should expect, should we expect God to teach us his 
statutes today by putting a Bible under our pillows at night and by the process of osmosis, believing we'll wake up the next morning with more scripture in there than when we went to bed? Well, of course not. We're going to have to apply ourselves to the study of God's Word. And certainly, James 1 speaks of praying for wisdom, but in the non-miraculous context in which we find ourselves today, we pray that God will bless our efforts to obtain that wisdom, but we don't expect to God to just bestow wisdom upon us in some direct miraculous way. He expects us to exert ourselves in order to obtain that wisdom and that understanding. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul, even at a time when the New Testament was still being completed, isn't that what he said, for example, in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4? For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in a few words, listen to this, verse 4, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. You may understand my knowledge. By what? By reading A little bit later on in the same epistle, in chapter 5 and verse 17, he says, Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's a command. We can understand what the will of the Lord is. Should we pray that God will bless our efforts? Indeed, just as we pray that God will bless our efforts to obtain our daily bread, give us this day our daily bread. We can pray for wisdom in the sense that we expect and understand that as we pray for that wisdom and understanding, that we're praying for God to bless our efforts, not in some direct miraculous way. But his statutes have been revealed to us in their complete and full form. And it's incumbent upon us to spend the necessary time and effort with those statutes to gain from them what we will inevitably gain if we approach the study of those statutes, those words, that law, the law of Christ especially today with a good and honest heart, and with diligence. But that reinforces the next statement, what we have said already. I am your servant, give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. Give me understanding. We want understanding, and we can have understanding, but so much of that depends on the attitude with which we will approach our study of the Word of God. You know, this verse reminds us of our lesson this morning about the Ethiopian eunuch. Really, if you think about it, one of the requisites for rejoicing was that he was receptive. He was teachable. He had the attitude that said, how can I understand unless someone guides me again? The Bible was not in its completed form then, was it? And he understood and appreciated the need for guidance, and he welcomed that guidance, and he responded favorably to that guidance. Verse 126 is an interesting one indeed, where the psalmist says, It's time, it is time for you to act, O Lord, for they have regarded your law as void. He's talking again about those who would be his oppressors. He's referring to those who are 
his enemies, those who have no appreciation for justice, no, those who have no appreciation for righteousness. They are self-centered and self-willed. They are consumed with worldliness, and they consider the law of God to be void. It's not a presumptuous statement that he makes. He's just calling upon God, in effect, to act. Isn't it time, in effect, he's saying, for you to act in light of everything that's going on around me? Would you not think that it's time for you to act, O God? I couldn't help but think, as I read and studied these verses, this particular verse, the first thing that popped to my mind is, we may be in that time, as far as many of us are concerned. Have you, have you wondered or thought about how long God is going to allow America to continue on the road that America is on today? How patient will God be with this nation? How patient will God be with this world? We know that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And we have to know, unless we're living in a cave somewhere, that righteousness is not characteristic of this nation today. And unrighteousness is becoming more and more commonplace. Is it time for God to act? Only God has that timetable. We do not. But from a human perspective, sometimes as we read verses like this, what may come to our mind is the same thing that was in the psalmist's mind. Is it time for God to do something that may have an impact in turning the thinking around in this nation, in this world? Or is it time for God to act in bringing this nation to its knees? We don't know. God does. God has the whole picture. But think about it from this perspective. Look at it this way. It is time for you to act on behalf of the Lord. It is time for me to act on behalf of the Lord. In other words, we can also look and say that because we may feel it's time for the Lord to intervene because of the unrighteousness that is so prevalent in our world today, should that not cause us as God's people to think that now more than ever we must exert our influence for good to the fullest possible extent, that we dare not and must not be shy about standing up for right and about speaking out for right, and that we should not and must not let anyone, anyone or anything keep us from being the kind of influence that can make and will make a difference in this nation and in this world. Remember, Abraham got down to the number 10 in Sodom, and God agreed, starting with 50 and ultimately came down to 10. All right, if you can find 10, if you can find 10 righteous people, I will not destroy this city. And he couldn't. He couldn't find them. But should not a passage like this remind us that 
we need to be among those who can be found as being righteous and being willing to speak out, to stand up in the right way and with the right spirit, but never to shy away and never to capitulate to those who would regard God's word as void. And that includes even those at times of our own family or friends or loved ones who may have gone the way of compromise and who may have turned their back upon the Word of God and who may, as a result of that turning back on the Word of God, made that Word void as far as their lives are concerned. Let us make sure that we never that we never allow the influence of anyone, no matter how close that individual is to us, to cause us to fail to stand up or speak up for that which is right and that which is good. And I say that because influences are being exerted in the Lord's church today upon family members, by younger family members, or perhaps influence being exerted by older family members upon younger family members. To compromise, to loosen up, so to speak, to lighten up, to let up, to say it's no big deal about this or that. And we must make sure that no matter who it is that is seeking to influence us to do that, that we lovingly but persistently continue to take a stand for the truth. And we'll do that individual or those individuals no good whatsoever by going along to get along. We'll only do them good by making it abundantly clear as lovingly as we can that we dare not go along because we must continue to be a righteous influence even in a time where unrighteousness is more prevalent perhaps than at any other time in our lives. They're going astray, but not me, the psalmist says. Therefore, because they've made void your law, here's my reaction to it. And this really reinforces what I've just said about what our reaction should be to anyone, family member, loved one, neighbor, longtime friend, no matter who it is, our reaction to their apostasy should be a renewed determination to love the commandments of God more than gold. Yes, more than fine gold. They are making your law void. Therefore, I will make sure that I stand firm. I will not go along. Because I value your commandments. I love them more than gold. Yes, than fine gold. Reminds us of another statement in the Psalms. Not in Psalm 119, but in Psalm 19. And there the psalmist says something that is very similar about the attitude toward the Word of God. More to be desired are they, the they being the judgments of the Lord in verse 9 of Psalm 19. More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold. And then he adds, sweeter also than honey 
and the honeycomb. That's how we should view the word of Almighty God. And then in the last verse for our consideration tonight, another therefore. Still tying back to the attitude that was characteristic of the oppressors who were making void the law of God. Therefore, again, he says, all your precepts concerning all. Notice those two alls there. All your precepts concerning all things. That doesn't leave anything out, does it? I consider to be right. I consider to be right. I was reading from Brother Robert Taylor that Brother Marshall Keeble used that statement a lot. The statement that he so often used was, the Bible is right. The Bible is right. Well, the Bible is right. And Psalm 19.8 says, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The fear of the Lord, or the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Yes, the Bible is right. Therefore, all your precepts concerning all things I consider to be right, and then notice this statement. I hate every false way. And you know what we could add to those words? And so did Jesus. And so did Jesus. The psalmist says, I hate every false way, but so did Jesus. Hebrews 1 and verse 8. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Quoting from the Psalms. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, o, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. goes back to Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. About whom is the writer speaking? About whom was the psalmist speaking in prophetic word? Jesus. Of Jesus, it is said, he loved righteousness and he hated lawlessness. Did he love sinners? Of course he did. But did he hate sin? Indeed he did. And so must we. And we must continue to stand against it. As we close tonight, your attitude towards sin... It's not as it should be if you're still in sin. That is, if you have not come away from a sinful life, you have not named the name of Jesus, have not put him on in baptism based upon a belief in him that has led you to repent of your sins and to confess him sweetly, then you are still in sin. But thanks be to God, because he loved sinners, though he hates sin. He came, he lived, he died. He rose again. He ascended to the Father. And he sent the Holy Spirit to the apostles and other inspired writers to tell you and me and all mankind, for as long as time stands, how to get out of that sin and how to be in 
Christ. And if you haven't done that by that belief that leads you to repent, confess, and be baptized, we plead with you to do that tonight, that you may leave here as one who understands the importance of hating sin while loving sinners and the crucial time in which you have an opportunity to be an influence for good at a time when there is so much evil. It's an exciting time, challenging, yes, but exciting from the standpoint of the potential good that can be done by every precious soul who will dedicate himself or herself fully and completely to the cause of Christ. If you once did that, but you know tonight that that dedication is no longer characteristic of your life, and you need to come home to your first love in a public way because your departure has been a public departure. We plead with you to do that in repentance, confession of sin, a plea for prayer, a plea once again for God to participate in your life as he once did and to take your part as he once did as you take him again. As we stand to sing, will you come?